Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Mark Santum. Well, it's good to be here with you again this morning. We are almost uh, at the end of Romans. If you're new to us, we've been journeying through Romans since 2009, so it appeared. And I don't mean that, I mean that in the best way. We've been uh, there since the spring. Um, we're almost there. We're not finished yet. So Pastor Steve will finish Romans 16 either next week or the following week, uh, right before Thanksgiving. Um, but today, um, I felt a letter of the Spirit, maybe like a divine diversion, uh, to look into and to explore uh, Psalm 84. Real quickly, you ever heard of a, a PSA, a public service announcement? I'm going to give you a BSA, a biblical service announcement, all right? Real quickly, it's not a big deal, but it is worth saying. Notice how I said that we're journeying into Psalm 84. Notice how I did not say we're journeying into Psalms 84, all right? So there are 150 Psalms. So just for a little biblical literacy, whenever you refer to all 150 Psalms, put the S on the end. Or if you're referring to more than one, like I love Psalms 42 and 43. That's appropriate. When you're referring to one Psalm, Drop that S, all right? So these are confessions from a recovering grammar Nazi. It's not a big deal. Will Jesus love you more if you do that? Yes. But so enough. That's all I'm going to say about that, except for this revelation, not revelations. Okay, there. I've said too much. I've said too much. You see, the uh, title of our sermon today is Pilgrim's Progress, a, psalm, a look at Psalm 84. So in order to really explore and to get to the depths of this psalm, uh, you have to understand the whole concept of a pilgrimage. It's a strange word. Uh, Here is uh, a definition, um, a composite definition I put together for our purposes. A pilgrimage is a long journey undertaken to a place of sacredness, usually as an act of religious devotion or quest for personal transformation. Now, I've made a few pilgrimages in my day. Not all of them were uh, very weighty and significant. I have pictures of three of them. So uh, years back, whenever they built Heinz Field, uh-huh. so in Pittsburgh, the, the sun came out, the, the clouds parted, a ray of sun came down upon the stadium, and I met God there. All right, that, that, that's, that's a bridge too far. But anyhow, it, it, it was sacred for me, in, not in the spiritual sense, but in, all right, I've invested a lot as a Steelers fan over the years, and some of you would be the same. So like Kurt Bailey, you know, when you go to Dodger Stadium, you know, there's that sense of, oh, ah, the Lord is here. I also made a pilgrimage as a former English major and English teacher. Uh, my wife and I, in 2002, we got to go to England, Stratford-upon-Avon, the Royal Shakespeare Theater, the Swan Theater. So we actually got to see Twelfth Night there. It's like, oh, this is amazing. I feel like Bill Shakespeare is right here among us. So that was, that was sacredness as well. And then not so much too, but uh, when I went to New York City, I made a pilgrimage to the Upper West Side to go to Tom's Restaurant where Seinfeld was filmed uh, many times. So... I was like, wow, that was amazing. So, all right, those are three pilgrimages that really aren't that life transformational. But there are people that make real pilgrimages of significance. Um, One of them, obviously, for our purposes here today, will be a little more relevant. Many of people have made over the years a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So why would they do that? Why have they done that over the years? Well, here's a few examples. Back in the 4th century, nobles journeyed to the holy city because they realized that their lives were entrenched in worldliness and wealth and affluence 
And they made a pilgrimage just to explore what a, a life of simple devotion would be to the Lord. So they would, they would go there to escape kind of the trappings of this world and see what it was like to be kind of stripped down before the Lord in possessions. Later, others would travel uh, to Jerusalem to wait outside the walls in eager expectation of the Lord's return. You know, there, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the early writings of the scripture and the early writings of, of early Jewish believers, I mean, they thought the Lord was coming like now, like set your clock. And so the, the, their people would, be, would make a pilgrimage and wait outside of the city walls waiting for the Lord's return. Um, so others, they would make a pilgrimage uh, there to atone for their sins, the ones that have had lived lifestyles of ungodliness, of sin, uh, they would go make pilgrimage there, which is one of the indulgences that Martin Luther uh, condemned because that uh, he had to inform everyone, remind them there's only one man God that can take away sin and pay for sin. Guess what? That person isn't you. So don't waste a very good pilgrimage um, by trying to pay for your own sins. And so uh, many others... I uh, would simply go there to meditate upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They would go to the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and they would just reflect on the most magnificent event in the history of the human race, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I'm guessing that there are a number of people here at KPC that have at least one time made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. If so, let me see your hands if you have been there. Look at that. That's a wave to quote Napoleon Dynamite. Lucky. I would love to go there. That is on my bucket list. How many of you would, would recommend either, how many of you would like to go again or you recommend to others that they should go? Because you, you found that to be more than just a good place for a tourist, right? You went and you found spiritual significance there. If you went as a Christian and just thought, well, that was just, that was, you know, we went, to, we went to Amsterdam, you know, then we went to France and we went to Jerusalem. They were all the same. All right, that probably, you probably need a little bit of a heart check. So today, I want to, since we're talking about pilgrimages and why people made pilgrimages to Jerusalem, um, let's talk, let's take a short journey into a psalm that speaks about a long journey. And for our purposes today, we're not talking about making a literal pilgrimage to the, the location, uh, geographic location of Jerusalem. We're not even talking about the place called heaven. What we're talking about today is our journey to a closeness with and a holy delight with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as you know, it's a long and adventurous journey. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you as we look into your word today. Would you meet us? Because we are pilgrims. Mm. Longing to make progress. Uh, some of us have journeyed well. Some of us have journeyed far. Some of us are new on our journeys. Others feel like we take two steps forward and eight steps back. Lord, but we are all on a journey. So, Lord, we pray for insight and hope and wisdom and help from your Holy Spirit through your word today that you would help us sojourners on our travels. Lord, we love and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll dive in. Uh, we're just, we'll just go, we won't be able to treat every verse with the same amount of attention, but we'll see how far we can get in our short time today. Verses 1 and 2, if we look at those. The psalmist starts off, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the course of the Lord. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. Right off the bat, you can tell that this psalm is all heart. They use the language of love poetry to write this psalm. Speaking of beauty, the longing of the soul, and the desire to be with God. 
And so what is this beautiful place that the psalmist is describing here? Well, it's either the tabernacle, which is erected in the, in the days of King David, or the temple, which is erected in the days of King Solomon. Uh, depending upon which um, biblical scholars and your studies choose, uh, you'll find that uh, maybe, maybe they come on both sides of the coin on this. But the temple, when Solomon built, was arguably the most glorious structure on the face of the earth. Remember when the queen... Sheba came from, uh, from afar. She came and she was just blown away by the splendor of God's house. But to be fair, the psalmist isn't just talking about a beautiful place. You know, Jonathan gave the word today about beholding God's beauty. Now, it's one thing to behold a beauty of a building, but the psalmist here longs for what truly makes God's dwelling place so desirous, and that is his presence. Psalm 84 expresses the longing of a person who longs to be in Jerusalem, but is unable to make that journey or their en route. So that's why there's so much longing here, because the, the psalmist is not there in Jerusalem, is not there in God's presence, but so desperately wants to be. So once you get that, once you even understand that that is the framing of the, uh, of this, of the mindset of this pilgrim, it helps you to understand the psalm a lot better. So most people, including myself, believe that this psalm uh, was written by the sons of Korah. You guys remember Korah? Um, I probably, if you have a son, I probably wouldn't name him Korah, K-O-R-A-H. Uh, Korah was the one that led the rebellion. Hey, I might turn back and talk to you guys every now and then. You're going to be here for a while. So. Uh, so Korah led the rebellion in the desert, in the wilderness against Moses. And remember, he was a guy that was swallowed up like Boba Fett in the desert. Um, and... So these are his descendants, not his, not his literal sons, but his descendants. So many people believe that, uh, most people believe that the sons of Korah wrote this. Uh, so others, like, like respectable guys like John Calvin, believe that King David wrote it. So either way, when you uh, read Psalm 84, you can actually read it from both perspectives. And you get, it's interesting to see the nuances of reflections you might get to based upon who you think wrote this psalm. But nonetheless, whoever you believe authored it. The main spiritual themes of spiritual hunger are consistent here and they're worthy to be embraced. Just listen to verse two. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. This is a heart that is desperate for God's presence. Desperate for God's presence. Even his flesh, which is often considered worldly, craves to be with God. It's almost like the psalmist has a, has a spiritual appetite, not just a love for God, but almost like an appetite for God. So can you, so if any of you have been on a long journey and you journey without food or water, when that hits you, that becomes overwhelming. You will do anything to get water. You will do anything to find food. Your body, you have a visceral reaction from not having food or water. And the psalmist here is saying, whenever he's away from God's presence for that long, he begins to have that kind of reaction. This visceral reaction, like, I cannot, I almost cannot operate until I am drinking from God's presence again. This kind of longing, it's so beautiful. Um, this whole, his whole being cries out to be with a, with a living God. And these cries, because there are some translations that will say, my soul sings for joy to the living God. Others say, will cry out. So these cries are either cries of anticipated joy or painful longing that only comes by separation. Remember, the sons of Korah also wrote Psalm 42. How many are familiar with Psalm 42? Uh, here's the first lines from it. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs, yearns for you, O God. The sons of Korah, they are longers, they are desirers. 
Um, they said, when can I go and meet with my God? Like they can't wait to meet with God and be in his presence. Can you ever think of a time when you were so, so eager to be with someone or to be somewhere that you almost could not contain it? You guys know that? Some of you, maybe it's like going on vacation. You've been on, you know, you have, you've been working for 51 straight weeks. 52nd week comes up, you're on vacation. I mean, just long and you're heading, well, to the beach here, yeah. The beach, yeah, that's a big deal. But uh, maybe you head to the mountains, right? So you just long to be somewhere or to be with someone. I remember whenever I was uh, dating my wife. I don't know if we were engaged yet or not. I'm not a very good driver at night. I t- you know, I tend to, you know, fall asleep at the wheel, which is unfortunate. Um, thank God for those rumple strips. But... It was 2 o'clock in the morning. I live in Pittsburgh. My wife, uh, Tina, she lives in Harrisburg, four hours away, separated by the Pennsylvania Turnpike. It was 2 in the morning. I was going to go see her the next day. I could not wait. I'm like, it's 2 a.m. I'm getting in the car. So this is me driving, you know, like this on the turnpike with my head out the window because I, and I did not, I did not uh, falter. I did not, uh, I, did, I did not fall asleep at the wheel because I knew that Tina was at the end of my four-hour drive. The longing and the yearning was so there, it, it, it kind of took over. So you guys know that kind of longing I'm talking about? Some of you guys are thinking about, like, a Burger King Whopper right now. Like, yeah. Yeah, that'd be really good. By the way, the, the, if you bought the Cub Scout barbecue, that, you get that today, right? All right, so talk about hunger. All right. So you see the power of desire it's all good with what we know, but you understand that we are primarily beings that desire and love. And so the power of desire, it, 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 it dictates where we go. There's a, one of my favorite theologians, a guy named James K.A. Smith. He writes, we are what we love because we live toward what we want. If you want to see what somebody really loves and wants, don't ask them to tell you. Just watch their lives. Their desires will pull them to where they should go, where they want to go. Verse 3, the sparrows have built their nests there to raise their families. Even says, even a sparrow has found a home. And the swallow a nest for herself where she could raise her young. I have a question. When is the last time you were jealous of a bird? All right. This guy is so hungry to be in God's presence that he desires to be with the sparrows and the swallows. And, you know, sparrows and swallows, they're flighty birds. But even, even the picture here is that they have found rest. How many of you tend to be flighty and anxious in God's presence? Ah, oh, there is rest. Just, again, back to Jonathan's word, just the heart that is like, ah, oh, God, I'm in your presence, and all the anxiety goes away. Um, in verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, for they are ever praising you. Notice it doesn't say, blessed are those who come to KPC for 90 minutes a week and praise God for 30 of them. Then they call it a week. You know, repeat seven days later. There is, the psalmist here is talking about the inextricable connection between experiencing the blessing of God and the believer's life of continual praise. Everyone say continual praise. Can, like, like, like the water. You don't have to check and say, is that, is that river out back still flowing? It's always flowing. And sometimes you have to give a pep talk to your soul to keep it going. Remember David in Psalm 103? He says, bless the Lord. Listen, soul, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Remember, he also said, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Sometimes we need to 
get those, uh, when we feel that the rivers are a little bit dry, you need to stand up in Jesus' name. That is an essence of spiritual warfare right there, right? Where you stand up and you tell your soul, we will com command your soul to bless God. Get those rivers flowing again because always worthy of his praise. So if you look at verses five through seven, um, they go a little bit, uh, they go a little more in depth now to uh, the life of a pilgrim. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. So in verse 4, the psalmist just celebrated those people that have the privilege of being in God's presence. Now he's focusing on those who are far off, who either can't be in Jerusalem, who are on their way there. Um, these are like pilgrims on the move. So he's talking about them right now, talking about where he is. And so I can think of some, the reason this is so compelling uh, is proven by people that write stories and movies because these, this kind of pilgrimage is, at the, is such at the heart of the human condition because we all long to find uh, satisfaction and transformation. So even, even sometimes silly films will do that. If you look at the next slide there, here's four random ones that I found. Uh, the, the examples could be endless. So uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes your Jerusalem might be Wally World, right? Um, National Lampoon's Vacation, there was no way they were not getting to Wally World. There was this sense of we are getting there no matter what, all right? Now, was that a spiritual pilgrimage? Yeah, no. But nonetheless, the reason the story was so compelling is because there's something about pilgrimages that we all love to see. Uh, the Wizard of Oz, which is an old movie, but, you know, the Yellow Book Road was taking them to where? To the Emerald City so they could meet the great Oz, so they could look behind the curtain. Of course, the Lord of the Rings, which I will try to incorporate into every sermon I ever preach. Um, Frodo and Sam making the journey to Mount Doom. Uh, to destroy the ring and uh, to free the world from Sauron's tyranny. And then, of course, uh, if you don't recognize the, the bottom right-hand corner, that is a still uh, from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, published in 1678. How many have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? All right. If you haven't, I have just given you your first homework assignment. And family, you know, and I've never read that with my family. That would be a great idea to do that with the family. Just a, a beautiful picture, an allegory of a man named Christian who undertakes an epic journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, and he encounters all kinds of highs and lows along the way. Just a beautiful picture of the Christian life. So these are, all, these are four examples of epic pilgrimages that the psalmist has inspired. Now in verse 5, the psalmist proclaims another blessing for those that have come to the end of themselves, they've come to the end of the ropes, they've come to the end of their strength. It is clear from these verses that Human strength is not going to cut it if you're going to make a true spiritual pilgrimage. You need God's strength to make this kind of a journey. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit not only to undertake this journey, but to even want to take it to begin with. You understand that? Do you remember, this is a Theology 101, we were dead in our sins. We were dead. We were floating Dead. Dead people can't do anything. God is the one that takes the initiation and revives us and brings us to life. And some of you, even though you follow Christ, some of you feel that you are spiritually dead. You feel like, I don't have the wherewithal to make a journey to God. I'm just an outsider and I need to be content with feeling like that. Boy, that is a lie that needs to come down. And I pray that it comes down today. 
that God will come in to fan into flame the desire that you have, give you the strength to even undertake a spiritual journey. Notice, I love this. If you look, look at the language, notice how the blessing uh, comes when your heart is set on pilgrimage. The blessing doesn't come after you make it to your destination. The minute you get in your heart and say, God, I am going after you with all that is within me, oh, there's a blessing that comes. There's a blessing that comes from a holy resolve, this holy resolution, like there is nothing, there is nobody, there's no circumstance that is going to keep me from my destination. None of this, oh, well, laissez-faire, whatever will be, will be. We'll just kind of take the path of least resistance. That's not the kind of men and women of God that the scriptures celebrate. Even Jesus, remember this verse in, in, in Luke 9, 51, and it came to pass when the time had come that Jesus should be received up, he steadfastly set his face like flint to Jerusalem. You know that, how many of you ever felt like, okay, you set your face like flint, your heart is set, this is going to happen no matter what. God gives you the strength, this holy resolve to do it. I know some of your stories and that you have done that or that you are doing that now. And good things happen when that, uh, when that kind of resolve comes upon you. So you have to ask yourself, where is your face set toward now? How is your heart set on a pilgrimage toward God? Because remember, desire, we always, our desires prove what we really want. And some of us need to, to pray before God to say today and say, God, you have to reorient my desire. That are the desires I have, they're just weak, they're pointed in the wrong direction. Lord, would you orient my desire toward you like the sons of Korah? Give me that resolve that ain't nothing going to get between you and me and a closeness that your scriptures promise. And it goes on to say, you know what? Your, your face better be set because the, this passage says, tough times on your journey, well, they are a coming. As they fa in verse 6, it says, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains cover it with pools. You know what uh, the valley of Baca means or it stands for? It's, it means a, a dry and a thirsty valley. It is so dry, so arid there that sometimes the only moisture that is to be found is your tears. How many have ever been there? How many have been to that valley? You feel like my tears are the only thing that is wet in this place. It's a place of weeping and tears, a place of harshness and weariness. And I know some of you have been through this valley and I know some of you are having, are currently having your mail sent there because you feel like you just are living in this valley. But I love what uh, theologian Thomas Horn said. I'm gonna read this to the choir back here. It's such a great quote. This present world is to us the valley of weeping. In our passage through it, our only hope is to be refreshed by the streams of divine grace flowing down from the great fountain of consolation. Beautiful. You see, in verse 6 and 7, it says that the pilgrims, they go from strength to strength, not from weakness to weakness, till each appears before God. They make the valley, this dry valley, a place of springs. The autumn rains covered with pools. See, God is the one that brings waters of refreshing to this valley, just like he did from, in the desert from the rock. Moses, pff, waters come out of the rock. Water doesn't come out of a rock unless God's behind it. And so if you remember, oh, okay, Lord of the, Ref Lord of the Rings reference. So Frodo and Sam are close to, the, to Mount Doom, and, 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 and uh, Sam gives Frodo the last of his water from his canteen, just drops 
And that helped, it helped Frodo get the strength he needed to take the next steps. But we don't serve a God that will come with the last few drops of the canteen. We serve a God, you can see there are pools, there are pools in this valley. You can do a cannonball in these pools of refreshing. God is a God of, of generosity and lavishness. And so when you need that water on your journey, guess what? It will be provided. And another vital, vital principle in making the spiritual pilgrimage from these verses, if you notice this, that we, get this, we journey together, not alone. Do you notice the plurals in here? Blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. Not as she does, not as he does. They go from strength to strength. In Pilgrim's Progress, he set out alone. But it wasn't long before Christian realized, I need a little help from my friends. Right? Lean on me. He needed some of those, right? So he, had, he encountered friends with the names of help, faithful, and hopeful. We are never meant to do this alone. When you are journeying, this spiritual journey through the kingdom of God. Do not embrace rugged American individualism. You will, we will find somewhere to bury you, right? So that's the thing about being American is great, but the individualism is not something that's conducive toward the gospel. We just, well, well, Jesus is just you and me. No, it is not. It's never just you and Jesus. It is you and Jesus, but it's you and Jesus and the rest of us. It is, we, we do not journey we do not journey alone. We journey together. We get each other's backs. That's the only way that we make it through this journey. How many of you can honestly say, you don't have to name a name, when you were going through the, some deep, dark, in this valley of Baca, you were, you were on a spiritual journey, God sent you somebody or people that literally saved your life and saved your faith. How many of you would attest to that? Thank you, Lord, for those people. And, and, and some of you have been those people. So remember, God's, God provides spiritual strength and his perseverance by two ways in this passage, through the water of his spirit and through the hope and encouragement of his people. You're going to make a journey without the Holy Spirit, without God's word, without others? Yeah, good luck with that, as they say. The Pilgrim's Prayer in verses 8 and 9, I'll just mention something real quickly. Here, the sons of Korah, uh, they pray to the God of Jacob, right? They say, God, Jacob, uh, they're going way back into um, covenant history of Israel, saying, you were the God of Jacob. You were there with Jacob on his journey. You will be with us and ours. He even says, look upon favor with your anointed one. The anointed one usually is the king. So he's referring probably to, to David or to Solomon. But what I love about this, remember, the sons of Korah, their heritage is embarrassing, Right? Uh, wait, you go way back and like, oh, who, who's notable in your family tree? <clears throat> Cora. Cora, what, what did he do? Uh, yeah, yeah, he rebelled and led this rebellion against God's anointed. So, yeah, he was swallowed up. It was bad. Yeah, I'm related to him. So, so here, what I love about the sons of Cora, they said, Lord, look upon us through your anointed. We are with the kings. We are with those whom you anointed. We are, putting, we are separating ourselves from the generational sin and connection 
to the past. Kind of, like, kind of like what Jesus does with us, with Adam, right? We can stand with King Jesus, the ultimate anointed one, and say, God, Adam, we, we don't have place with him. We have thrown our loss in with the king, our defender. And so when we stand before God in that great judgment day, we have a king right here that says, yeah, this is my subject. I got him. Amen. All right, so here's, here's the home stretch. The final declaration of God's greatness of this house. Let's look at verse 10. We just sang a song about this. You remember that from about 20 minutes ago? Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Mm. What are the gems we can mine from this verse? Well, let me just say this. Sometimes there's a difference between school math and Bible math, right? Because school math will tell you that one is less than a thousand. But biblical math, you can go to the next slide, will tell you that one is greater than a thousand. We are talking about quality over quantity, right? I tell you, I don't have any tattoos on me. If I ever get one, I might just get that. One is greater than a thousand. I'd love for people to come up and say, what does that mean? You really stink at math. I'm like, that is true. I really do. But let me tell you, this is some good biblical math. This is some beautiful math. And let me explain it to you. Here he echoes Paul's uh, message to Philippians when he says, I consider all things lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For the sake of that I've lost all things, I consider them rubbish or trash that I may gain Christ. The psalm, in the psalmist journeying away from God's house and their wandering, they have spent, it was obvious, they have spent a lot of time wandering in the tents of the wicked, of the ungodly getting a taste for and being tempted by what goes on in the lives of the godless people. So uh, for a moment here, this, pretend this is a tent of the wicked. Now on our, on our father-son retreat, there shall be no tents of wickedness. Am I right, Pete? Am I right? No tents of wickedness on this retreat? So if you go in here and you, and you look and you are enamored by what's going on, like, oh my gosh, there's power and influence. There's self-reliance without self-restraint. Pleasure with no pain, no sexual prohibitions, no guilt, access to porn. Oh my gosh, drugs, booze, partying, materialism, and money. And I get to have control of my own life. Oh my gosh. There's a, there's a gravitational pull here that even as you walk with the Lord does not automatically go away. Am I right? If you want to be real, can we be real for a minute? There's a gravitational pull of the world that makes journeying with God uh, problematic, to say the least. But uh, to echo the sons of Korah, when you begin to taste of the greatest affection, and we begin to see by God's grace that these are all empty, anemic idols of lesser affections that will inevitably let us down. You know, it's interesting, in the era of the tabernacle, the temple, um, the Korites, they were assigned to do various menial tasks in and around the building, including being a doorkeeper. This is, uh, this is where verse 10 comes from. The psalmist, like many of us, have had the opportunity to experience both pleasures of God's house and pleasures of the world. But they say better is one day, O oh God, in your house than a thousand spent in the tents like our ancestor Korah did. Good old, in good old-fashioned Charles Spurgeon said, this is a great example of God's worst is better than the devil's best. John Trapp, a, a theologian, said, we sometimes read this, like, better is one day than a thousand. I'd rather spend one day than a thousand. 
I love what he says, John Trapp. He says, we sometimes read this as though there's something heroic about this choice, some touch of sacrifice in the decision. There's nothing of the kind. This psalmist here is a man of profoundest common sense. That right? It's like Romans 12, offer your bodies living sacrifice. This is your reasonable act of worship. Like, look at the greatness of the kingdom of God in his presence. All right? Uh, it's a no-brainer from a kingdom perspective. There's no, oh, well, six of one, half dozen of another. <laughs> Come on. If that's, if that's what you think the kingdom of God is between the world, six of one, half dozen of another, you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. What I love about the motto of the doorkeeper First in, last out. How many of us would, oh, would to God that I would have that kind of attitude? You understand that the Korites, they, they were doorkeepers. They did not have an esteemed um, privilege to the temple. They were not sons of Aaron. They were not Levites. They were not priests. They were just menial. They were like members of the diaconate, right? So they like, they're all kind of menial things, but... A lot of the guys and the deacons, they are the first in, last out. To be in God's presence, if I can be the first one in God's presence and the last one out, then phew, it's kind of like the priesthood of all believers, right? You know, they, this is way before Martin Luther. Like, you don't have to be a priest to dive into the presence of God. Whatever menial task you have, let that be your attitude. First in, last out. And finally, the last two verses. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing will he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. On our jerseys, God is our sun. He is a source of all blessing and guidance. It's always good to make a journey when you can see the sun. And God is our shield, a source of all protection, and he is our defense. God is with us on the spiritual journey, and he promises that there will be no good thing that we need on this journey that he will not provide. Another quote by Spurgeon, you can never get enough. He said, there are thousands of mercies that we do not enjoy on our spiritual journey. Not because they are withheld, but because we do not receive them. If you look at Psalm 84 from a bird's eye view, it's almost as though Jesus journeys with us as we make a pilgrimage to himself. Jesus journeys with us as we journey to him. He helps us along the way. And remember, the destination of our pilgrimage, remember, it's not Jerusalem. It's not even heaven. Because remember, if that was our ultimate goal, God would have killed you as soon as he saved you. But rather, the sweet place of surrender to the will of God, where his loving presence satisfies us to the core of our being, and where we are changed in significant ways. We journey in this world, but we are not of this world. Sometimes your journey will seem short. Other times it will be long. But guess what? You will be a pilgrim until Jesus comes back or until you go to meet him face to face. We are all pilgrims. Do not settle down here. Do not settle down here. So as we, as we prepare uh, to take the Lord's Supper in conclusion this morning, uh, can I just ask you three questions? Just You can ponder any of these three, whichever the Lord brings to your mind. First one is this. How does Psalm 84 affect my view of coming to church? Right? Do you have a first in, last out mentality? Do you hunger and thirst to come and be in God's presence? Not that you, not that you can only get presence in on, a, on a Sunday morning, but this is where we gather together as believers, and that's all part of experiencing God's presence. Or number two, ask yourself, am I journeying alone? Am I doing it in my own strength? Am I doing it on my own terms? Am I refusing the promises for help that God is affording me? 
Or here's a question number three. What is it in my life that keeps me from setting my heart to make this pilgrimage to closeness with God? What sin is in my life? What apathy? What hardness? What discouragement? And the prayer here would be that God would change our desires. Mm. He would reorient them to, the, to himself. Amen. On your journey, one more quote from Charles Spurgeon. On your journey, remember this. As you pass by the tents in this world, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you are convinced of the emptiness of everything else but Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.